morning, Providence. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it is a great privilege to address you as Father this morning. It is a privilege to sing to you, to read your word, to fellowship as members of the body of Christ. And it is a privilege now to open the word that you have written for our good as a revelation of yourself. And we do so with great eagerness, knowing that you are a good God who delights to help us as we study your word ask once again that you would do this, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures, that, that he would open our minds and hearts as we, as we read the text, as we consider it, as we think about important things, hard things. We pray, Father, that you would use the scriptures this morning to move us to greater and deeper affection for the Lord Jesus that we would love his good news, that we would embrace it as our story and so delight to live it out in our lives. And we would do that for your glory. We need your help in these things, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. text this morning is Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. So as you're finding your place there, let's stand together. And we'll read that, that entire passage, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. As you'll recall, Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, where the passion awaits the Lord Jesus. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You may be seated. The 
those of you familiar with the New Testament teaching on marriage, of course, you're familiar with the fact that the New Testament does make allowance for divorce in very specific cases, cases of sexual immorality and in cases of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. I am thankful that in Mark and in Luke we have a text where those exceptions are not mentioned. It is helpful for us to have a very straightforward proclamation of God's intention of marriage with, with no exceptions in view. Of course, because those exceptions are found in the Scriptures, they are legitimate. We are not going to spend time on them this morning as they are not the thrust of this text. And the fact is that many, many Christian marriages end where those exceptions do not exist. Many of us find ourselves in marriages where uh, it is, we could, we could say, easy. We, we enjoy our spouses and uh, we, we could say we, we've not had to work that hard. Others of us find ourselves in marriages where it just is not that easy. And some of us in those kinds of marriages, we either soften our view of marriage or we just figure that God will forgive us if we walk away from that marriage and we decide to do that very thing. This passage is so straightforward regarding what Jesus requires of us that it can leave us wondering how, especially those of us in those difficult marriages, how is it possible to live the life of discipleship that Jesus depicts here? And remember, that is what Jesus is doing. As He is on His, row, on his way to Jerusalem, preparing to give His life as a ransom for many, He is instructing His disciples, and therefore us, on what it means to follow Him. And here we find a very practical picture of discipleship as it pertains to this most important of human relationships, marriage. And as He speaks very straightforwardly about marriage, we are left wondering, how is this possible? We'll answer that question, but first we're going to answer two other questions that are presented more, more immediately in the text. The, the question on the surface of the text is, how should disciples regard marriage and divorce? There is another question, a deeper question in the text, and that is, how should disciples regard obedience in general? The way that Jesus interacts with the Pharisees shows that He has a very different idea than they do of what it means to obey. Now, once we have answered those two questions, then we will address that question. How, how is it possible to live as Christ calls us to live in marriage? So, first of all, we're going to notice how Jesus teaches us to think about obedience in general. And we could crystallize the teaching in, in, in this regard or, or as it pertains to that question in this way. Disciples, that is those, those who followed Christ, those who've denied themselves, taken up their cross and followed Him, they pursue divine intention rather than divine concession when it comes to obedience. When, they, when they're asking themselves, what, how, how do I obey God? They're looking for what, is, what does God intend for me rather than, than divine concession. So let's look again, beginning at verse 1. Again, Jesus, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. Again, as it was his custom, he taught them and the Pharisees come up 
and in order to test him, ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, that's the surface-level question again. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? His, his wife? And, and Jesus is going, to, he's going to answer that question. First, he's going to get at the deeper question regarding one's attitude toward obedience in general. So, verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, the Pharisees here are referring to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And I'd, I'd ask you, if you would please, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 24. I think the Pharisees would prefer that we did not do that, but I think we should. Because when we do turn to Deuteronomy 24, we will see that the Pharisees are twisting Scripture. Jesus asked, what did Moses command? And I pose the same question to you as we read Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. What is Moses actually commanding in these verses? Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 1. Where does the command come in? When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Jesus asked, what did Moses command you? Now, we'll see shortly that Jesus did not have Deuteronomy 24 in mind when he asked the the Pharisees that question. But they responded, referring to Deuteronomy 24, Moses allowed us to have a divorce. In other words, Moses says it's okay to divorce. Is that accurate when we read Deuteronomy 24? Well, no, it's not. Moses takes a practice that the people are already engaging in, and he regulates it so as to minimize its destructiveness. Jesus explains that in verse 5. Look at, go, go back to Mark 10, verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, some who have not read Deuteronomy 24, they think that what Jesus means in Mark 10.5 is this. Because you're hard-hearted and you can't get along, Moses allowed you to divorce. That is not what Jesus is saying. That is not the case, as is obvious when you read Deuteronomy 24. Jesus means that because you are hard-hearted and are therefore in the habit of divorcing your wives, Contrary to God's design, as Jesus will point out momentarily, Moses gave this regulation to mitigate the damage. Now, if you would, humor me once more and turn over to Exodus 21. Turn to Exodus 21, verse 22. We'll look at a command that has nothing to do with marriage, but is phrased very much like Deuteronomy 24 and I believe that by analogy, it will help us to understand the nature of what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24. This this passage in Exodus 21, 22 and following 
is grammatically structured the same way as Deuteronomy 21. So, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 24. So, Exodus 21, beginning in verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Okay? So, so based upon what we read in Exodus 21, would it be fair to say that Moses allows us to hit pregnant women so that they prematurely give birth? No, obviously not. Obviously, that is not Moses', Moses intent. The law is written in the context of a broken world where men fight. They fight so much that innocent people get harmed in the process. And this law doesn't condone that behavior, but it gives instruction about what to do in the aftermath. So also with Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Some of the laws of God are designed to respond to sin and to minimize the damage caused by sin. Deuteronomy 24 is is an indication of just how hard man's heart is and just how messy sin makes our lives. And that mess can be traced all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, if, 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 if everything could have just stayed in Genesis 2, the, the Pharisees never would have asked the question that they asked Jesus. Mar- marriage would have been fantastic, but Genesis 3 happened, right? Adam and Eve, they both rejected God's design for their relationship in the way that they handled the temptation in the garden. And as part of the curse... Those tendencies became hardwired into their hearts. And you can read about this in in Genesis 3.16. The wife became bent upon dominating her husband, and the husband became bent upon abusing his authority over his wife, and marital difficulty ensued. We can can see in the subsequent generations the difficulty that husbands and wives would have in loving one another well. Just read Genesis alone. And you see how that curse and, it, and its relationship to the, the husband and wife, how it played out in the coming generations. Husbands and wives, hard-hearted toward one another because of sin, they just don't love one another well. And it makes life miserable in many cases. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1-4 through 4 doesn't advocate divorce. It is an attempt to mitigate mitigate the destructiveness of sin upon marriage and, and, and what the, the human heart wants to do in response to this difficulty in marriage. The Pharisees are a great example of how hard-heartedness approaches the Scriptures and how hard-heartedness thinks of obedience. In their minds, Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 means that God permits divorce in the sense that it has His stamp of approval. They don't recognize that Deuteronomy 24 is a tragic recognition that man is broken and needs a Savior, the very Savior that the Pharisees are trying to trip up by asking this question. Jesus goes on to show two things in Mark 10. Explicitly, he shows that they've read the Scriptures wrong as it pertains to marriage. Implicitly, he shows that they have the wrong attitude about obedience. He begins to show that in verse 6. So Mark 
10, verse 6, Jesus continues, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The Genesis 1 and 2 is what Jesus had in mind as he asked that question of the Pharisees, what did Moses command you? Because what Jesus quotes here is from Genesis 1 and 2, and Genesis was authored by Moses. That's what Jesus has in mind. What did Moses command you? Jesus is thinking Genesis, God's design for marriage. Now, before we look at all of that, do you see the difference between Jesus' approach to obedience to the Lord and the Pharisees' approach? The Pharisees are twisting Scripture to find out what can I get away with? Where can I find a law that that mitigates the sinfulness of man and read it as approval of sin? Jesus searches the Scriptures for God's heart. What is it that God wants for man and of man? Jesus reads the Scripture asking this question, How can I honor my Father? What does the Father want me to be? And th- th- this, this, this attitude of, of obedience, it pertains not just to the issue of, of marriage and divorce, but if we look at, at our uh, evangelical world, at our own hearts, we, we, we may find that, that we tend to do this on a, on a wide range of issues. On a wide range of issues, some professing believers adopt the Pharisees' approach to biblical interpretation, bending over backwards to find justification for what we can get away with. Is there some way that I can say Scripture approves of what I'm doing? Whereas Jesus' approach, and therefore the approach of His disciples, is simply to ask of the Scriptures, how can I honor God? What pleases my Lord? And the the heart asking that question, Jesus' hermeneutical approach, the heart asking that is a heart that's willing to do whatever, a heart that delights to do whatever the Lord requires. It's the heart of a true disciple, someone who has denied self, taken up a cross, and followed Jesus. And before before we move on, I, I, I would say let's just pause here for a moment and, and reflect before the Lord and each of us just consider, is there an issue where I, where you, are sitting in the seat of the Pharisees as we read our Bibles? Your spirit-informed conscience is saying one thing, but you are tempted to twist the Scriptures in a different direction against the Holy Spirit's intent in order to justify your preferred course. And it doesn't have to have anything to do with marriage. Is there an issue like that in your life? As disciples, we cannot conceive of the Bible as a collection of impersonal guidelines that we have the freedom to parse this way and that, looking for allowances, looking for concessions, looking for loopholes. But rather, this is a, 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 a the, the Bible is
was a window to a relationship, and, and we look to it for direction regarding how to honor and know the one that we love. How, how can I love my God and Savior best? That's how, that's how we should approach the Scriptures. Disciples pursue divine intention rather than concession. Now, let's, let's look more closely at, at Jesus' reasoning from the Scriptures as he, as he gets at this issue of, of marriage and divorce. We're going to see three elements that Jesus gives us from the Scriptures about marriage, about God's good design for marriage. He appeals to God's original design, what God actually desires, what pleases God. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus is quoting Genesis 1.27. Now here, here is all of Genesis 1.27. It reads, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Now the, the, the first thing that Jesus points out about God's good design for marriage is that it is between a male and a female. Or we could say, it is heterosexual. Mar- marriage is designed by God to be heterosexual. In Genesis 2, when Moses describes God designing a helper suitable for the man, he does not make another man. He makes a woman. And, and we, we, we get zero ambiguity from God on this issue. Uh, attempts to reinterpret the Scriptures on this will force you to make a choice. You really will have to make a choice. If, if, you, if you want to find something other than heterosexual marriage in the Scriptures, you're going to have to make a choice. You will either have to say that words don't have objective meaning or the Bible is not inerrant. You, you cannot hold to an inerrant Bible that has objective meaning and say that it allows for something other than or in addition to heterosexual marriage. And it is tragic that the church is caving on this left and right. We ought not do that. Now listen to this, though. At the same time, that heterosexual marriage is God's good design for marriage. That should not be the defining message of the church. What should be the defining message of the church? The good news of Jesus Christ. And those who do struggle with aberrant lifestyles, those who, who are struggling with any kind of sexual brokenness, what they should hear louder than anything from the church of Jesus Christ is that there is hope and help for sinners in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus makes the point that God made them male and female. And, and I, I would suggest to you there's a reason that he does that. If Jesus does not intend to make the point that marriage is, is, is heterosexual, there is no reason to begin with Genesis 1.27. He can go straight to Genesis 2.24, which, which he will in just a minute. He, he can just go, go straight to a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. No, he starts with Genesis 1.27. He made them male and female and male and female. He brings together in marriage. Why does he do that? Because he wants to make the point that in God's good design, it is male and female alone that are to be joined in marriage. 
Mark 10, 7. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now there, Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24. Now, if your fingers aren't sore yet, let's go to Genesis 2, please, in your Bibles. Genesis 2. The two shall become one flesh. Some may suppose that this one flesh thing is is all about the sexual union, the man and wife, they're joined sexually, and in that sense, their bodies, their bodies are connected. And it may be that the, the, the marriage union is consummated sexually, but there is something more profound here than just a sexual union alone. And of course, you know the story, and Pastor Rick has already read this passage for us this morning. I want to read a bit, bit of it to you again. God wants to provide a helper suitable to the man. Animals aren't going to cut it. Verse 21, Genesis 2, 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with what? With flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, what's the point of all this? Is God just, does he just run out of raw materials? We, we read this in context, we, we, we're reminded, no, this is the God who calls into being with words things that don't exist. God doesn't have a materials problem. He's doing something intentional here. He's showing that, that this is a very unique relationship that's being created. Their relationship is going to be unique above all relationships on the planet And the man gets it, because look at verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones. And and what else? Flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The, The woman's very name means that she is part of him. Now, from that scene with Adam and Eve... Moses makes a conclusion about every other husband and wife that would follow Adam and Eve. Verse 24 is not about Adam and Eve. Verse 24 is about us. It's about every person that gets married after Adam and Eve, but it's based upon what God just did with Adam and Eve. Adam, God made Eve out of Adam, makes, them, makes Eve Adam's own flesh. Therefore, verse 24, therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Why did God make Eve from Adam? To signal that when a man and woman marry, an utterly unique relationship has been created. A union has taken place. They are one flesh. She is his body. He is her body. And that's why Paul says, that's why he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, about every marriage, the, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Similarly, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, 28, Husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why would Paul write that? Because the man's wife is his body. When two people get married, it, it's not like they're being joined. 
It's not like their lives are being fused. In God's economy, they are one flesh. And that's Jesus' own commentary on Genesis 2.24. If you you go back to Mark 10, look at the rest of verse 8. You Turn back there with me. Mark 10.8. Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. You want to be your own autonomous person? Don't get married. Don't do it. When two people marry, they are no longer two. They are one before God. And here's the conclusion that that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, derives from that reality in Mark 10.9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now that weird way of conveying a third person imperative makes it sound a little soft. Let not man separate. Please don't do this. That's a command. That is a command. What Jesus is saying is, don't do this. And that's the bottom line answer to the Pharisees' question. It leads to the second element of God's design for marriage. Lifelong. Marriage is designed by God to be lifelong. So, we go back to the Pharisees' question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Or for a wife to divorce her husband for that matter? matter? No, it is not lawful. Jesus is a better student of the Scriptures than the Pharisees. I acknowledge again that the New Testament does allow for divorce in cases of sexual immorality and in cases of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. However, those exceptions are not the focus of this passage. So again, we're not focusing on them this morning. Those of us not in those situations, and I'm going I'm I'm to guess that most of us are not in those situations. Most of us are not in a situation where our spouse is being unfaithful to us. And most of us are not being abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. And so we should hear from this text saying to us, divorce is not an option for me. And this, this teaching that marriage is to be lifelong, while, while, while it's difficult to accept, it, it, it's probably somewhat familiar to most of us. However, to the Jews of Jesus' day, it was revolutionary. And so it's no wonder that the disciples had questions. Verse 10 shows that they were asking him about this privately. And what they found in that private setting would have been even more flabbergasting. Look look at verse 11, what Jesus lays on them additionally. Verse 11, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This reveals another element of God's design. It's monogamous. Marriage is designed by God to be monogamous. One man, one wife for a lifetime. And what's striking here, though, is that we find it's possible to commit adultery against your spouse after you have divorced that spouse. Now, how can that be possible? Because of what Jesus has just shown about God's design for marriage because of what he has just shown about that one flesh reality. One flesh is one flesh. It is a lifelong arrangement. Now, this does open up a huge can of circumstantial worms. Like, is a person who remarries after divorcing, is that person in a perpetual state of adultery? 
there, there, there are so many, there are so many permutations of, of that question and others that there's just no time to deal with them all this morning. And I, and I would invite you that if, if you have a specific situation that, that you're wondering about as, as we sit here this morning, please submit that question to our podcast on truthandcircumstances.com. We love to deal with those kinds of questions, and that would be a better forum with more time to deal with it. There's just no time to, no one sermon could deal with all of the questions that arise from an, an issue like this. But I will just say, I will say to those present, since I've just raised that question, I will say to those present who have been, who have been divorced for unbiblical reasons and then, and then you have remarried, my view is that you are not in perpetual adultery in your new marriage. The act of your marrying your current spouse was a singular act of adultery against your former spouse. That's what Jesus says right here. It's exactly what he says. It is not perpetual adultery. You're not, you're not, you're not confined in an adulterous relationship with your current spouse. And I, I can explain why that's the case on the podcast. I don't have time right now. But what should you do if you're in that situation? It, this is what you should do. Repent of the rebellious heart that gave rise to that act and stay married to your current spouse and pursue the kind of marriage with your current spouse that we find advocated in Ephesians chapter 5, which we're going to talk about here very shortly. And do not think that because you have committed adultery that you are doomed to wear the proverbial scarlet letter for the rest of your days before God. Because God is a God who forgives the repentant. God is a God who makes all things new. And He, he takes broken things and He repairs them. So don't think that because, because you've done that, you are damaged goods for the rest of your days. That is not true. That is anti-gospel. Now, a big takeaway for, for us, though, is that we must realize how big a deal this is. Those, those of us who have not divorced, who are perhaps in a very difficult marriage, we must realize what a big deal this is to the Lord. The divorce is not open to us. If, if, if we have been divorced, we ought not remarry. If we do, we'll be committing adultery. We will be violating that one flesh relationship. We'll be dishonoring God. Our faithful God is all about monogamy. Now, we've answered that general question about, about obedience. We, we should be about honoring God, not about finding loopholes and, and seeing what we can get away with. Regarding divorce, divorce is not an option. And that leads to the question that we began with, and that is, how is this, how is this even possible? In, in, in fact, in, in the parallel passage to this one in, in Matthew 19, the disciples conclude, after hearing this teaching from Jesus, the disciples conclude, my goodness, if, if this is the case, it's better to not get married. That's just another way of saying, how, how, how is this even possible? This is too hard. Is it too hard? 
Is it impossible? You, you may be living in a marriage that makes Jesus' prescription here just seem outrageous. You're, you're in a marriage characterized by years of pain and difficulty and a divorce. As painful as it would be, it seems like the lesser of two agonies. How, how is it even possible to do what Jesus says? Here's the answer. Very simple answer. I'll explain it. The answer is this. Genesis 3 is not the end of the story. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 now. Ephesians chapter 2. Genesis 3. The entrance of sin into the world. The great difficulty that the fall created in the marriage relationship. Not the end of the story. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, is not the end of the story. We did indeed inherit self-serving hearts of conflict from Adam and Eve, but it's not the end of the story. Ephesians chapter 2 shows us the turning point. Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The, the marital difficulties that, that, that many of us experienced that, that were caused by the fall, they were but part of the inheritance of the fall. We also inherited death and rebelliousness such that we followed the devil with the world in all the manners of ungodliness of the flesh so that wrath became our inevitable future. Misery in life and misery in eternity when we die, suffering under the just wrath of God. But, good news comes in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Now let's pause right here and I'll insert some biblical material. Jesus died on the cross. That's why He had to be made alive. Jesus died on the cross in our place, paying the penalty for our sin. When He was raised from the dead, our sins were forgiven and we were given life in Him. Verse 6, and raised us up with Him, God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we, de we deserved eternal wrath and misery, but to demonstrate His great grace, He gave us eternal kindness and riches through Christ. Verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you don't earn this salvation from God by, by doing good things. You receive it as a gift by trusting in Christ. Now, if, if, if Paul were to have stopped writing right there and just say, uh, see you later, Ephesians, that's the end of the letter. 
we would enjoy grace upon grace, would we not? I mean, that is fantastic news, what we've just read. Unbelievable news. But there's more to be had. And it pertains to our ability to function well even as we continue to live in this broken world. Because look at verse 10. He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, Jesus' work on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, that has not only addressed the penalty for our sin, but also our former incapacity to function in accordance with God's design, that also has been reversed by what Jesus did on the cross. So the good works that God desired for us in that Genesis 1 and 2 world, He has now prepared for us to walk in those things even now. And just so we don't miss the ramifications of that, Paul begins to show us exactly how this freedom to function as God designed plays out in different areas of the Christian life. When we get to chapter 5, he, he shows us what this looks like in marriage. And what he describes there looks a whole lot like Eden. Genesis 2 Eden, not Genesis 3. And we can't walk through the whole passage, but if you would just flip over to chapter 5, you can just scan through there, and many of you are very familiar with it. But just as Jesus did in Mark 10, the end of Ephesians 5, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. He quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But Paul then adds this, his, his commentary on Genesis 2.24. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Now, now, much could be said about this, but here's one important point. When a wife is told to submit to her husband as the church does to Christ, and the husband is told to love his wife as Christ does the church, they are being told to reenact the gospel in the power of the gospel. Because when Jesus, when, when Paul says that Genesis 2.24 actually refers to Christ in the church, what he's saying is that the ultimate leaving of home and cleaving to a bride happened when Christ left His throne in heaven and attached Himself to His bride, the church. And it is to Christ's union with the church that Paul points and says, Hey, husbands and wives, do that! And because you are joined to Christ as His bride, Ephesians chapter 2, you can do that. And by doing that, you will testify to the truth and power of the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, because the gospel is true, husbands and wives can have marriages that look like Christ in the church. When, when, when Jesus stands before the Pharisees and before the disciples and says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. He is not saying, I know this stinks, but you're just going to have to hold your nose and stay married because that's God's design from the beginning. No. Jesus' own life, death, and resurrection make it possible to go back to Eden. This is not a pipe dream that Jesus is holding out as He, as he puts Genesis 2.24 in front of us. He is the one 
who changes hearts. He can transform two self-centered, vindictive people into two others-centered, forgiving, serving people. He gives the power to do what we could never do prior to the cross. The only question is, will we deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Him? Certainly not saying it's easy, but we surely ought not regard marriage as if Jesus never lived and died and rose again. Even, even in cases where only one spouse wants to honor Him, He will give the grace to do just that and to have joy in the process. So will, will, will we submit to His Lordship? If the gospel is true, your marriage can be different. You may not see how. And you, you, you may need somebody to come alongside you and help you. You may need counseling. And, and we do counseling here at Providence Bible Fellowship. All you have to do is ask for it. Send me an email. We have a portal on our website where you can request counseling. Get on there and ask for it. We will get you set up with, with counseling. Just understand that as a disciple of Christ... You have denied yourself, you have taken up your cross, you have followed Jesus in all areas of your life, including your marriage, as it pertains to this issue, as it pertains to every area of your, of your life. Do not think, what can I get away with, but how can I honor my Father? And Because the gospel is true, you can do what He asks of you. You can do so with joy as he walks beside you through it. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend a few moments in silent reflection before the Lord and encourage you to use that time to consider what the Lord would have you to do. Is there something pertaining to your marriage relationship that he would have you to deal with? Or is there something regarding your attitude toward obedience in general? As we discussed earlier in the message, something that you need to deal with before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we thank you that the gospel is true. We thank you that the Lord Jesus has poured himself out in love for his bride, the church. We thank you that we have benefited from his kindness and selflessness. We pray, Father, that you would grant us to believe all the more in that gospel and the power that it gives us to live faithfully to you. We pray that you would give us the heart of Christ as it pertains to obedience in general, that, that we, like he, he did, that we would simply want to honor you, to love you well, that we would not search the scriptures for loopholes and concessions, twisting them this way and that to find out what we can get away with, but that we would simply want to know you and to honor you. Father, we certainly ask that you would help us to do this as it pertains to 
our relationships, our marriages. So please grant us to believe that the gospel is true and because the gospel is true, we can pour ourselves out for one another as the Lord has done for us. We ask for your help in these things. And we trust you for it because of how you have demonstrated yourself to be so generous and kind. In Jesus' name we pray.